It's wonderful to see you this morning. If it's your first time in St. Thomas's, then let me introduce myself. My name is Ben and I am the vicar at St. Thomas's. If you thought you were coming to St. Hilda's this morning, you are actually in St. Hilda's. Um, but St. Thomas's is a church in the city centre, but we've been meeting here for the past year and a half now while St. Thomas's, our building in the city centre, is being, um, going under a huge redevelopment. The good news is that we will be in there in the next few weeks, which is really, really exciting. If you hadn't heard already, the glass is now all in. It has been sealed. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, just to say we've been waiting for that for a year. It's a year behind schedule having the glass in and getting it sealed. But we are now finally in. If you are new, it's your first time here, then we would love for you to take one of these I'm new cards and fill it in um, and hand it to myself. That would be really, or or somebody with a lanyard on, that would be really, really good. That's just so that we can get you connected into the life of the church. If you are new and it's your first time here, one of the things that we'll do every single week at St. Thomas's is that we will open the Bible, have it read to us, And then we'll explore a little bit about what the Bible is saying to us. And that's because we believe that the Bible is God's word and that it speaks life. And that the best way to live our life is to follow in its truth. So if you could grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, that would be fantastic. We're going to read the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which churches up and down the country are looking at today because it's the set reading for the day. I'm just going to give myself a little bit more space. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 25. And um, if it is your first time in church today, this will be a very familiar story to you. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? The religious lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So today we are looking at one of the most famous stories ever told. This story has been turned into films, it's been turned into books, it's quoted by politicians and monarchs, it's quoted by teachers, it's taught to children all over the world. It's one of the most famous stories ever told, and I think one of the best stories ever told. But what is this parable about exactly? We've often, as we've read this, you may have learned this in Sunday school, we've often read this parable and we've been taught that we put ourselves in the place of the Good Samaritan. We're told that we're to be the best neighbours that we can possibly be. And sure, of course, as Christians, we want to be the best neighbours that we can possibly be, more now than ever. Sorry, more now than ever. No, now more than ever, sorry. We want to be the best neighbours that we can possibly be. We want to radically love those who are different from us. And the world needs people who can do this. If you think about what's gone on just in politics over the past few days, neighbours have been turning on neighbours, haven't they? Somebody who was living in number 11 Downing Street wanted his neighbour out so he could get in. Neighbours turn on neighbours. If you think internationally, neighbouring countries attack other countries. There's division even in our own city. We do need to learn how to be good neighbours again. Think about some of the political divides that have separated us over the past few years. Brexit, remain. Lockdown, no lockdown. Mask or mask. We really need to learn to love one another again and to be good neighbours. But how on earth do we do that? And what if the point of this story is not that we're the good Samaritan, but that we're somebody else in Jesus' story? Would that change the way that we read this text? And would that free us up to really love our neighbours as ourselves. So keep the Bible passage open in front of you and look at verse 25 with me. Luke introduces us to an expert in religious law, a lawyer, if you like, and he's come to test Jesus. Teacher, he says, what must I do in order to earn eternal life? What must I do in order to earn eternal life? In other words, what must I do in order to be sorted? What do I need to do in order that I have right standing with God? What do I need to do in order to make sure that I'm in heaven? Tell me what I need to do, Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus responds, You know the law. How do you read it? And the lawyer replies, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds in verse 28, precisely. That's exactly what you need to do in order to inherit eternal life. Do that and you will live. And the lawyer's really pleased with himself. He's just been given full marks from Jesus, who's attracting a huge crowd. Some people are saying that he alone has the words of life. There's even whispers and rumors going around that he might be the Messiah. And Jesus has said to this lawyer, precisely. But Jesus' answer isn't enough for him. If you look at verse 29, the lawyer wants to justify himself. And so says, well, tell me then, Jesus, if that's what I need to do, who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer is saying, okay, I know that I need to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know that I need to love my neighbor as myself. So Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is so I can go and love them so that I can get eternal life. Now, what do we notice about this lawyer as he asks these questions? Well, this lawyer thinks that the way to salvation, the way to be saved, the way to earn a right place with God is that he's got to do certain things. Tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor so that I can justify myself? Tell me, Jesus, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? This lawyer has a religious spirit and he's trapped in religion and thinks that somehow he has to earn God's approval. Now, what Jesus does in this story is he completely undoes that way of thinking. What Jesus wants this lawyer to see is that there is nothing that he can do in order to inherit eternal life. And we know that that's what Jesus is trying to communicate because of the way that Jesus is telling the story. If Jesus was wanting to teach works righteousness to this lawyer, in other words, that you have to do something in order to be saved, Jesus would have told the story like this. Because remember, this is, a, this is a Jewish man, a Jewish lawyer, an expert in the law. Jesus would have told, and this is how the crowd would have expected Jesus to tell the story. The story would have gone like this. There was a Samaritan in the road. And a Samaritan had been beaten up, probably by some Jewish robbers and thieves. And what's happened is a Samaritan priest has walked by and done nothing. Some Samaritan brothers and sisters or cousins of this Samaritan man in the road walk by and do nothing. And then a Jewish man comes along the path, sees the Samaritan in the road, and risks everything and spends everything on him in order for him to be nurtured back to full health and back to life. But that isn't how Jesus is telling the story, is it? If Jesus was giving something for this man to do, that's the way he would have told the story. Remember, he's asked, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life. 
And if Jesus had told the story like that, he'd have taught the man that, well, what you've got to do is you've got to love everybody absolutely perfectly. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And so you've got to love those that hate you perfectly. You've got to spend everything you've got on them, all of that kind of stuff. But Jesus does not tell the story that way. He tells the story this way. There's a Jewish man in the road. He's been beaten up. He's hurting. He's been robbed by thieves and robbers. He's probably half dead. The robbers are still close by, probably. Everything is at stake. And a Jewish priest walks by, sees this man, and does nothing. Now, legally, he couldn't do anything because to touch this bleeding, dirty body would have made him ceremonially unclean. And presumably, he was on the way to the temple or something like that. Then the Levites come by. They do nothing. And then a Samaritan comes down the road. And at this point, the crowd listening to Jesus would have been on tenterhooks. A Samaritan. A Samaritan's coming down the road. Now, as I've already said, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. This Samaritan that was walking down the road owed this Jewish man absolutely nothing at all. And this Samaritan, despite the fact there's some dangerous robbers around, stops, bandages this man's wounds, takes him towards the end of his journey, takes him to an inn, pays the cost of the innkeeper, soothes him with olive oil and wine, and says to the innkeeper, whatever it costs to get this man better, I will pay it. What radical generosity. The problem that we've got as we read this parable is why does Jesus tell the story this way round? Because he's not actually answering the lawyer's question in telling the story this way round. It makes no sense given who's asked the question and what the question was. Jesus tells the story this way round for this main reason. Jesus knows that nobody can keep the law and therefore earn eternal life. Now, it is true that you have to be perfect in order to be with God forever. But Jesus knows that nobody can keep the law and earn their way into heaven. And if you think about it, can you think of one person that you know that has loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength every second of every day? And do you know somebody that has loved their neighbour as themselves, that has always treated others every single time the way that they want to be treated? Because I certainly don't behave like that. I know lots of you fairly well, and you're wonderful people, but I know that you don't always behave like that. But that's the way we can only spend eternity with God if somehow that, that is us, that we've loved God of all our hearts and management and we've loved our neighbour as ourselves. That is the way to be right with God, right? 
But Jesus flips the tables here and he's basically communicating a very simple truth to this religious lawyer. And Jesus tells the story this way to say this. What if it was you, lawyer, that was in the road? What if it was you that had been so beaten up and wounded and bruised by life that you could do nothing to save yourself? What if you needed to be saved by somebody who needed to burst in from the outside and whatever the cost, whatever it took, this outsider, this person who was so different to you would pay that cost in order for you to be made right and whole again. See, Jesus isn't giving a religious rule here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sure, you know, we're to love our neighbours as ourselves, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But what Jesus is communicating here is so much more than that. Jesus is saying, what if it was you that was in the road? What if it was you that was so helpless that you could do nothing to save yourself? What if it was you that needed a radical rescue? In other words, Jesus is saying to this lawyer, Jesus is saying this, that he, Jesus, is the Good Samaritan. When Jesus was facing the cross, at the end of his ministry, before he died and rose again, Jesus was so fixed on going to the cross for those whom he would die to save, that he said, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, I'm going there so that my people can be free. Jesus paid the price for us. Jesus exchanges his perfection for our mess so that we can be free. You see, there is one person that has always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and always loved his neighbour as himself. Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we should have died and paid the price so that we could be tended and have our wounds bound up. Jesus paid the price so that we could be set free. Jesus paid it all. Jesus does not tell this story the way that we think he should. Now there's some implications for us if this is the way that Jesus meant for the story to be read, aren't there? The first is this, that religion does not work. Now, some of you I know are here for the first time, and you may be thinking, what on earth is a vicar doing saying that? Well, the priest and the Levite in the story are religious characters. And the law prevents them from helping this man who's dying in the road. 
Jesus came to set us free from that so that we might have relationship with him. Every religious worldview, apart from Christianity, every religious worldview says that you have got to somehow earn your salvation. Think about some of the world religions where there's scales at the end of time and your good is outweighed against your bad and depending on which way it tips, you might get, you might get eternal life with God or not. I'm so glad that that isn't how my story, my story ends. Because I know that I get stuff wrong all of the time. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably know that you get stuff wrong all of the time as well. There's no way that I could ever earn my way into God's good books. We cannot save ourselves. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's religion or secular society, they all, I think, have the same message at the end, which is that you've somehow got to earn your own identity and prove your self-worth and prove that somehow you are good enough in order to you know, earn acceptance or be accepted by whatever group of friends it is that you're living with. And it is just so exhausting, and it just does not work. I speak to so many young people in particular who spend so much of their time trying to create some sense of identity for themselves trying to fit in with whatever the cultural norm is and whatever the normal cultural views are, just in order to be accepted and to be seen as believing the right things. And it is so exhausting. So it doesn't matter whether we're atheists or whether we're you know, religious and believing in, in some, of a, some of a God. Every worldview says that we've got to create and earn our sense of identity. Religion says earn your life. Society says create your life. But what Jesus is saying in here, Jesus says my life for your life. And that is the best news ever. You see, what else we see in this story is that salvation has to come from the outside. Jesus himself has broken into our story at immense cost, at the cost of his life. Jesus is the true good Samaritan who entered the road of your story so that you could be free. Salvation is not achieved, it's received. Salvation is not achieved, it is received. And if you've been checking out Jesus and trying out church for a while now and you've somehow thought that you've, you've got to do certain things in order to make yourself right with God, you've got to sign up to certain rotors or you've got to give a certain amount of money or you've got to read a certain amount of the Bible or you've got to pray a certain amount of times during a day, all of those things are good things to do. But they do not make us right with God. Trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection is the only thing that makes us right with God. And it's walking in the truth of that 
that really sets us free to love our neighbour as ourselves. Because when, we've, when we know that we've been neighboured by Jesus, the true Good Samaritan, when we've experienced grace that's so radical and free to us, we can't help but want to share that with other people. We can't help but want to neighbour others in that same way. But without knowing that we've been neighboured by Jesus, then lots of what we do is just purely selfish. If, you know, if we think that the only way in which we can inherit eternal life is by going to church or by giving a certain amount to the poor or by loving people that are different to us, even when it's really hard, again, all of those good things are good things to do. But if we think that that's the way to earn a right standing with God, then I'm doing those things only in order so that I can, be, I can have eternal life. And so all of my motives become messed up and they're just selfish and they're all about me. For the past few weeks, we've been thinking about the Trinity, haven't we? We had Trinity Sunday. We spent a week looking at the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and a whole week looking um, at, at, at the Trinity. And one of the things that we learned there was that God does not need us. God has everything that he needs within himself. The Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Son, who loves the Father. And that's been going on for all of time. And so God doesn't need my worship. God doesn't need my attention. And yet he wants it anyway, because he loves me and he invites me in. Now that completely changes the way that I think about myself. God doesn't need me, but he wants me. When I come to church on a Sunday, it's not just some rule that I'm ticking, some box that I'm ticking in order to please God. I know that you know, God has everything he needs anyway. And that means when I come to church, I can be free in my worship. It's not something I'm having to do in order to earn God's love. He loves me anyway, and so I'm worshipping. And it's not selfish. It's supposed to be selfless. Not doing it in order to earn anything. This sets us free from selfish motives and to truly love if we understand this as Jesus loves. Now, Jesus never answers the question, Who is my neighbor? He answers a question that the religious lawyer actually never asks. And the question is this, who do I need to become a neighbour to? Who do I need to become a neighbour to? Jesus chose to neighbour us. As his people, we're to choose to neighbour the people that he puts around us. People that are different to us. People that come from different backgrounds. Remember, Jews and Samaritans were a different race. People from different parts of the world. People with different life stories. People with different experiences. Who do I need to become a neighbour to? Because Jesus has become a neighbour to me. Now, I want to tell a story of somebody who really understood this. This story, some of you may have heard before, comes from South Africa and from the Truth and Reconciliation Project that was set up by um, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela after apartheid had finished. 
And the way that the Truth and Reconciliation Project worked in South Africa is that um, white people who'd carried out heinous crimes on, on black people um, were tried in a court of law, and the people who um, had been who'd been hurt, who'd, who'd had criminal action happen to them, they got to determine what happened to the people that perpetrated these horrific racist crimes. They, they got to, you know, they, they played a part in deciding what would happen. And one day, in a truth and reconciliation court of law, a frail black woman who'd had some horrendous things done to her stands slowly to her feet. She's over 70 years old, and facing her across the courtroom are several white security officers. One of them is a man called Mr. Vanderbeck. And in the courtroom, he had just been tried and found guilty in the murders of this woman's son and her husband some years before. For no reason, other than the fact that they had a different skin colour to him. The court found that Mr. Vanderberg had come into the woman's house many years previously and taken her son and shot him at point-blank range and then burned the young man's body on fire while he and his officers held a party. Seven years later, Mr. Vanderberg and his, co and his um, friends had returned to the same woman to take her husband as well. For many months, she knew nothing about her husband's whereabouts. Then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vanderberg came back to fetch the woman herself. And she vividly remembered going down to, um, going down to a place by a river where she was shown her husband's body lying on a pile of wood. He was just alive still. And the last thing that she heard her husband say was, Father, forgive them. He was then burnt alive. This woman now stands in the courtroom and listens to the confession offered by Mr. Vanderberg. And a member of the commission, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, turns to her and says, what do you want to be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family. And this old, frail lady says this, I want three things to happen. To me, to happen. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burnt so that I can gather the dust and give his remains a decent burial. You could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom. She then continued, my husband and son were my only family. I want, therefore, for Mr. Vanderberg to become my son. I would like him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend time with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I have remaining within me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderberg to know that I offer him my forgiveness 
because Jesus Christ, my Saviour, died to forgive. I know that would have been the wish of my husband. And so now, I would kindly ask for someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderberg in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistant came to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderberg, overwhelmed by what he'd heard, just fell to the ground and fainted. And he does that, those in the courtroom who were watching, most of whom were victims of de- and, you know, victims for decades of oppression and violence and racism, just began, someone began to sing in the courtroom the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now that is a huge example of somebody that know it, knowing that they've been neighboured and neighbouring somebody else who's so different to them and treated them in such an appalling way. How on earth do you get the strength to do that? It's impossible unless you know that you yourself have been neighboured by somebody that owed you nothing. Jesus owes me nothing at all. I was the one that was dead in the road. I was the one that had been so badly beat up and burnt and bruised by life. Because of stuff done to me and stuff that I've done to others. And Jesus chose, at great cost to himself, not to walk by on the other side, but to spend his life so that I could be free. I don't have to earn it. I don't deserve it. It's a free, unmerited, undeserved gift, and it's mine. So how do we respond to this passage? How do we respond to this parable? I'm not saying we all need to be like that amazing South African lady. And how she did that, I do not know. But Jesus is communicating that we can only be set free to love if we realize that we're loved and and have been rescued by him. Our vision here at St. Thomas is, is to follow Jesus build community, and love Newcastle. So let's just filter our response through those three things. Following Jesus. What does this mean for us as we follow Jesus? It means, church, that we can only follow Jesus' example in his strength and in his power and reminding ourselves of the gospel every single day that we've been neighboured by him. So one of the things that I'm doing in response to this Bible passage is just saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, that I might have life and life in all its fullness. It may be that you've been coming to church for 10 years and you've heard for the first time today 
as you've stepped into this church, that salvation is a free gift that's been won for you on the cross and in Jesus rising to new life. You don't have to work and earn and earn and earn your salvation. It's given to you. Perhaps it's your first time in church today and you'd like to start following Jesus. Perhaps you've heard today that Jesus has won eternal life for you. You don't have to earn it. If that is you, then you can fill in one of these welcome cards. Um, They say, I'm new on the front. And if you just tick the box, I became a follower of Jesus today. Um, If you could do that, if you do want to um, respond to the message, then that would be a fantastic thing to do. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer now. And perhaps you want to pray this prayer, which is a prayer that says, Jesus, I recognize that I was dead in the road. I recognize that you told this story about me and that you chose to not walk by the other side. So I'm going to pray this prayer and you can pray it in the quiet of your heart. And um, please tick that box if if you do pray this prayer today. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that I see myself in this story. Thank you that although I was dead in the road because of things that I've done and things that may have been done to me, you chose not to walk by on the other side. I say sorry for the wrong in my life. I turn away from it and turn to you. Thank you for dying on the cross so that, I could be, so that I could be free. Come into my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, and give me a fresh start for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, take one of these, just tick that box and come and give it to me. We would love to um, give you a little um, book that one of the team has written here about how to start following Jesus and reading the Bible. Following Jesus. Building community. Church, we've been called to love others radically. The kind of community that Jesus envisages the church to be is not a community of solely like-minded people who look like one another and have the same background and have the same education and all of that kind of stuff. Which we're to choose to neighbour others that are different from us and see them welcomed into the community that God is building. Remember, Jesus built a community of prostitutes, religious people, tax collectors, teachers, Jews, non-Jews, people from all over the world. That is the kind of community that the church is supposed to be. And so we ask Jesus the question, Jesus, whom do I need to neighbour today? Who, have you put, who are you putting around me that I need to neighbour today? And secondly, we choose to love, New, and thirdly, sorry, we choose to love Newcastle. In the way that Jesus, the true good Samaritan, loved this man who was dead in the road. And that's costly for us. Sometimes it means that we'll have to give of ourselves more. Well, it will mean that. It means that we'll have to give time and effort and money and the gifts that God has given us in order to see this city know that God has a plan for it. He sent his son Jesus to die and to rise again so that they could have life, the whole city could have life in all of its fullness.
I'm going to just invite you to stand. I'm going to read one final thing out as in response. The early church in the Roman Empire, they were not popular people. They were crucified. Some of them, like Jesus was, they were beaten, they were tortured. They thought radically different things to everybody around them, and yet they kept loving everybody anyway. Somebody once wrote to somebody in the Roman Empire and said, why is it that we can't shut down the church? And this, um, this was a Roman emperor. And one of his advisors said, well, the problem with these Christians is they don't just feed their own poor, but they feed our poor as well. That's the kind of people that, we were, that we're supposed to be in response to knowing that we've been neighbored. There was a man called Diognetius who wrote, um, he was a, leader in the, a Roman leader in, in the second century, and he saw these Christians living this radically different life where they loved everybody regardless of who they are. And he wrote to somebody and said, tell me, wh who are these Christians? Why, is, why are they growing in number and why can't we stop them? What is so different about them? And this letter was authored back to Diognetius. We don't know who wrote it, but the contents of the letter, it's very brief, just say this. The distinction between Christians and other men does not lie in country or language or customs. They follow local customs in clothing and food and in the rest of life. And yet they exhibit the wonderfully paradoxical nature of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but as if they were resident aliens. They share all things as citizens and yet endure all things as if they are the only underclass. Every foreign country is their homeland and every homeland a foreign country. They marry like everybody else. They have children like everybody else, but they do not abort their young. They keep a common table, but not a common bed. They live in a world, but not in a worldly way. They enjoy a full life on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the appointed laws, but they surpass the laws in their own lifestyle. They love everyone and are universally derided. They are unknown and roundly criticized. They are put to death and as they die, they gain life. They are poor and yet they make everybody around them rich. They lack all things and at the very same time have all things in abundance. They are dishonored and are glorified in their dishonor. They are abused and they call down blessings in return. When they do good, they're beaten up and, and they rejoice as if they're people who've been given a radically new life. In short, what the soul is in the body, that is Christians in the world. The soul lives in the body, but is not confined by the body. And Christians live in the world, but are not confined by the world. God has appointed them to this great calling and it would be wrong for them to deny it. My prayer is that we can live like that in this region, in this city today. But we can only do it by remembering the gospel, that we have been neighboured ourselves. And that's the only thing that sets us free to live like this. Amen.